to episode 76 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the Vault Studio on the beautiful campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who tried to lock us into the vault this morning, John Scott Sloat. Yeah, that was quite an episode, wasn't it? <laughs> I could see you were starting you were you were approaching the panic I level. I was a, I was approaching panic. <laughs> yes, yes. For listeners out there, the vault door is a is a real vault door like with a combination and everything. Yeah. But once you're inside, there's a handle that slides all of the metal bars that like jut into the wall to like really lock it in place. Mm-hmm. And I locked us in which I've done before. Like yeah. this, this isn't a new occurrence. No. And then forgot something, went to go get a, a book, I think, and came back and uh, uh, to open up the door and just just could not get it open. <laughs> and then you and I were like looking at each other in the vault, locked in. and uh, Yeah. Yeah. I, I did have the thought, well, it's a good thing there's a lot of people in the building this morning and, and we could probably call our uh, administrative assistant to come fetch us or – our seminary recruiter is nearby, probably. So, yep. although I think he's in a class this week. Oh yeah, yeah. We've got uh, we've got D min uh, classes going on. Yeah, yeah. We got three of them. It's summertime, and the hallways are more crowded than usual. Yeah, so, yeah. And the so. parking lot was full, which was my first tip off of what's going on. The parking lot's typically not full yes. on a on a Tuesday morning in uh, in June. Yeah, but it's great to see. Um, we we've had a uh, a bit of a, a resurgence in our doctor of ministry program. And that's yep. been encouraging to see. And so if you're interested in, in finding out more, you can go on to grace.edu and check out our Doctor of Ministry programs. We, uh, we've, we've made some changes in offering some tracks and things like that. So We've got a bit of a new model for it and uh, yeah. it's attracted a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, surprisingly, they have not asked the two of us to teach a class yet. I don't think I'm qualified. Right. Yeah, I don't think you can't. Well, no, you can't. You, you you have to have a degree above the the degree you're teaching. I right. think is what the what the qualification is. So, although we have the, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but we have the chaplain for the L.A. Dodgers here on campus right now. Oh, nice. So he's uh, and, and I think the L.A. Kings as well. Huh. So. Yeah, I, th- I think he, I, I think I knew we he had a we we had a connection out there that that did that. So. Yeah, yeah. He's teaching advanced shepherding right now. Okay. Does he have an uh, uh, an agricultural background for that? Or? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. Yeah, he could be a jack of all trades. You know, he, he could be one of those guys that lives up in the California mountains and, you know, actually shepherds sheep and then drives in <laughs> and, uh, you know, meets with – Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. Or hi, hi, other Dodgers. Yeah. <laughs> other Justin Dodgers. Justin Turner. There we go. There you go. There you go. So – well, if you would like to uh, connect with us, we are uh, available in multiple platforms. You can find us on Twitter at V&SPod. You can email the show, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, though. I think the group still exists. It does. I, I Things think, aren't getting posted I think there. I need to start doing that because you're locked out still, right? Yeah, my, uh, my account pers- is gone. Uh, it's disappeared. Like I'm no longer married to my <laughs> wife on Facebook. There's there's a lot of issues right now. You got memory hold. Yeah, yeah, I got memory hold. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. My wife's Facebook got hacked this past week, um, which was funny. We were taking a walk, and uh, our pastor texts her and says, um, "Did your Facebook get hacked?" And so 
she looks at her at her Facebook and she had posted, I'm raising money for some organization to help stray cats. Yeah, that's not my wife's uh, <clears throat> kind of thing. So, But thankfully, we caught it quickly and weren't locked oh, out of the account. That's so. too funny. Yeah, yeah, no, mine is gone. I don't think I have a profile picture. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've, I'm waiting for myself to resurge and to see what I represent or who I am <laughs> right. or – you know, any of those things. Yes. So we we are on Facebook, various and sundry podcast. I will say I'm not hating it. Like I'm not hating that I'm gone yeah. off, off Facebook. You weren't on Facebook much these days anymore. No, right? I was really on Facebook for the podcast yeah. and, and to promote it. Uh, gotcha. But other than that, I, was, I wasn't really on there. So I'm not, I'm not hating the, yeah. the fact that my identity has disappeared. There you go. And we are on YouTube as well. We have a YouTube channel, various and sundry podcast. You can go check that out. Yep. If you would like to do us a solid, you could go on to whatever platform you access the show and leave us a glowing review and a five-star rating, especially if you are listening through the uh, the Apple podcast platform. Uh, they have their algorithms and such that, that <clears throat> the more ratings and the more reviews. I think we are the first group that pops up if you type in the word various. OK. So – that's that's a step Progress. in the right direction. Progress. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Okay, well, let's uh go ahead and turn our attention to the world of sports. NBA playoffs. Things are narrowing down. Yeah, we've got some good matchups right now. So, what do we have? 3 series at 2-2? Yes. Yeah. So, we're in the uh conference semifinal stage. Mm -hmm. So, Two series in the East, two series in the West. One of those series in the West is already done. The Suns swept the Nuggets, which I'm, I'm not surprised that they won that series. I'm a little surprised they swept it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, they're playing really well. They, they look like a a team that could win it based on how they played this, hmm. this past series, I think. Uh, the other series in the West uh, tied at two games apiece, Clippers and Jazz. Which, That's fun. Yeah, it's the Clippers are a hard team to know what to do with because some nights they look like they're the best team in the NBA with Kawhi and Paul George, and then other nights they look like they don't even belong in the playoffs. Sometimes they, yeah. they're just hard to pin down. It feels like Paul George, Paul George's reputation hangs in the balance of this playoff run, doesn't it? Probably. Um, he did not do super well in the bubble last year. He did not. Uh, and he has moments where he doesn't look that good this year mm -hmm. either. Yeah. Uh, there's more intrigue in the East where you have uh, both series tied at two games apiece, Suns and Hawks. And uh, Milwaukee and Brooklyn also at two. The, the big news in each of those series is actually, again, injuries. So you've got – especially in the Milwaukee and Brooklyn series, which look like – Brooklyn was going to win that comfortably, won the first two games easily. And game three, it looked like Milwaukee kind of you know, eked out one of those pride-salvaging kinds of wins sure. where you're like, OK, so now this is going to go five games instead of four. And then um, uh, in game four, Kyrie Irving goes down. So instead of the big three, they have the big one now in <laughs> Brooklyn. They have Kevin Durant. But they have the, the best one, I would argue, of those three. Yes. Yes, they do. But it will be interesting to see if he can carry them. Yeah. And how far. Because um, it doesn't look like Kyrie's coming back for this series. 
By the way, did you see what Kevin Durant did to that reporter? Uh, you might. You have to be more specific. So it was either over the weekend or late last week where the reporter asked Kevin, you know, you, ha- you had this Achilles injuries. Most players don't even come back from this. Uh, well, where were you a year ago in your thoughts on that? And he just goes, is that even a real question? Yes, <laughs> I did. Of see course, that. I believed in myself, you, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, just kind of just kind of slammed yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure he got crushed for that and perhaps to some degree, rightfully so. But there are plenty of dumb, dumb questions that reporters ask. And as one who went through some sort of formalized training in the in the industry, I am continually amazed at how often reporters ask really dumb questions and rather than thoughtful questions. Don't don't you think that most most sports reporters though, they they have their column written when they get to the press conference and they're just looking for a quote that goes along with their column. I'm sure that's not I'm sure that's not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what I always read into like that was a weird out of left field question that felt like a non sequitur. Yeah. Well, I I love I love um I love questions like, um, how much does this win mean to you? Well, are you really expecting the athlete to say, really not that much? I really don't care. I'm just here because they paid me. Yeah. And, you know, the questions like that that have seemingly obvious, easy, clear answers like why did you bother asking that like mm-hmm. come on be better like put a little bit more thought into what you might ask this this athlete anyway so uh and then in the um in the Sixers Hawks series now Embiid's health is sketchy questionable yeah, yeah. so i i think i mean i would have said Brooklyn can still win the NBA title if they've got Kyrie and if they've got two of their big three, if they've got Durant and either Kyrie or James Harden, they can win the NBA title. I don't think they can win it with just KD. So do you have a favorite then? Who is, is it the Suns? Well, based on how, how they're playing right now, probably. Probably the Suns. Okay. Assuming like if Kyrie can't come back and James Harden can't come back. Hmm. Um, and even if Kyrie comes back – He's not going to be a hundred percent. I mean, that I mean, he left the arena in a walking boot and crutches. Yeah, which that can be a little bit overdramatic sometimes. But that that also means he's also a guy that his game is predicated on quickness and explosiveness. Well, when you've got a bad angle like that, that that's problematic. So, so we'll see. I think it's it's going to be an intriguing. Uh, playoff run from the rest of the way out, which, as we discovered yesterday in doing some planning. Will last a lot long, a lot longer this year, right? I mean, the yeah. NBA playoffs are lasting forever because they started later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were sitting down, we were talking about some podcast stuff and mapping out, and just and, looked at and vacations. Yeah, you know, you know, like we're, we're traveling and we got to yeah. do pre-recordings or yeah. record when we're on the road or something like that. Yeah, and we discovered that the NBA finals don't start until July eighth. That's a that's a late start. So even if you figure a four or five game series, that's that's a week, ten they're, days. They're normally ending like like a week ago, right? Yeah, usually by now they would be done. Maybe a, about a week ago, like for first week of June is sort yeah. of the 
end point typically for the NBA. But with COVID, they got a late start. So yeah, we're going to have NBA championship level basketball in mid-July. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's going to go through the baseball all-star break. <laughs> yeah. That's just so crazy. Uh, speaking of baseball, what is going on in the world of Major League Baseball, John? Yeah. Well, I think it was last week we talked about uh, pitchers putting substances on the ball to, yeah. to get a higher spin rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprisingly, uh, offense has gone up in the last week. Um, And so uh, it's clear that certain pitchers are no longer putting foreign substances on the ball or less egregious substances. Sort of the narrative Uh that's coming up is that a combination of rosin, that that bag that's behind the mound, and uh, sunscreen to get a better grip is acceptable. But when you're putting on this spider tack or whatever they're calling it, (laughs) is unacceptable. And uh, The two guys that are probably most most guilty are seemingly most guilty are Garrett Cole of the New York Yankees uh, and Trevor Bauer of the Los Angeles Dodgers, okay. and both of them had a precipitous drop in uh, in spin rate uh, this this last week. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it sort of harkens back to the days uh, like in the NFL when they allowed stickum. You remember yep. hearing about this? Right? Oh yeah. So defensive backs. Uh, in particular, uh, would wear this – would put on this, this substance on their hands called stickum, which basically was a low-grade glue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if they even got their hand on the ball, just kind of stuck to it. And there are all kinds of stories of you know the ball comes back to, to the official and it's just like dripping with <laughs> goop and just grossness because of that. Well, they went back and looked at a video clip uh, that that popped up maybe two years ago where – um, the pitcher threw the ball and it spiked into the ground. And so the catcher came up, missed the ball in the pick, and it's just looking all around for the ball because the runner's going a second thinking it's a pass ball. The ball stuck to the chest protector <laughs> of the catcher. <laughs> and he just looks down and just like, oh my gosh, you know, like, you know, kind of the did I do that sort, sort of moment. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was, you know, looking back at that, it was just like, oh, my gosh, there it is right there. They're sticking yeah. there. Anyway. Yeah, that's crazy. I uh, mean, the Mets are four games up in the okay. NL East. That's, that's the most important thing. And we beat the Cubs last night. So that, okay. that feels pretty good. That will make Jordan and Indiana sad. Yes, yes. Although they swept us in Chicago. So there's, there's no room to talk. But the Cubs can't play on the road this year. That's the big news. Is <laughs> they, they have a great home record but can't play on the, can't play on the road. Okay. All right. So we are continuing our discussion of Jesus the Great Philosopher by Jonathan Pennington. And so um, this past week, we uh, encourage you to read chapters uh, – was it four through six? I think so. Four through six. Yeah, that sounds right. Philosophical big ideas in the New Testament uh, and then the two chapters on emotions. Yeah. And I think um, both of us, as we kind of reflected on these chapters – gravitated more towards the discussion of the emotions, those two chapters on the emotions as uh, particularly interesting and helpful. Not that the other chapter wasn't, but, Mm -mm. you know, limited time to talk. So let's talk a little bit about – he has two chapters on the emotions. And the first uh, chapter of that section, what he does is he describes um, how different ancient philosophies and even contemporary people think about emotions and the role of emotions in the life of a person. And then the following chapter uh, describes how Christianity has a sophisticated solution 
to that. So, yeah, and I think that's what I probably appreciated the most is just is just there wasn't a wholesale we need to get rid of emotions or we just need to trust all of our emotions. But the answer is it's complicated. And let, yeah. let's talk about some of the nuances and, and those things there. And I found, I found that really helpful. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think that uh, when it comes to emotions, I, I feel like that's a subject that um, the, the church often struggles. I mean, our culture, I think, struggles to know what to do with them. Yeah. Because you've got two extremes. You have one extreme that basically tries to act as if emotions don't exist sure. or are completely irrelevant and unimportant to a person's life. And then on the other end, you've got people who are basically all in on emotions mm-hmm. and are like, you just got to go with them. You got to trust them at all, at all points and turns. You need to them. Yeah. You need to uh, you know, just – just go with them wherever they lead you kind of thing. And I think some of that some of that is a uh, a product of how people are wired. I think some people are more naturally wired towards being more emotional or less emotional. I think there is some sort of you know whatever that complex mix of you know genetics and upbringing that that leads a person that that, that creates our personalities basically yeah. that um that leads you in a certain direction. Um, I know for me, I, I tended to be more of a, um, I think, partly upbringing and even just early. My early experience of Christianity was very much on the um, feelings and emotions are something mm. to be viewed very suspiciously, yeah. and, and you need to be extremely cautious of them. Um. And so I know that I come to these kind of conversations with that starting point typically. Though I feel like as I've gotten older, I trust that I've come to a little bit more – a closer approximation of the biblical view that I think Pennington holds out here in terms of um, you know, not ignoring them mm-hmm. but also not just going all in on them. Yeah, I, I would say my upbringing was very similar, and not that it was ever overtly discussed, mm-hmm. right? But but that was sort of what was caught uh, was yeah. that um, emotions at times are tricky things that lead us into sin, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I enjoy what Pennington had to say about educating our emotions, yes, uh, doing reflection, mm-hmm. prayer about those things. I, I thought all that was was incredibly incredibly helpful, um, and I've found as I've as I've gotten older, I find myself way more often becoming emotional uh, about things, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a movie I'm watching or yeah. you know, you know, something something that's uh, that's that I that I see as good and beautiful that that you know I'll just get emotional about. When probably as a younger man in in seminary or uh, college, even probably was was far more skeptical of being emotional about those things. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And uh, yeah, it's funny that uh, I think – I wonder how much of that is just the longer you live. Um, I don't know. I, there, there must be something too. I think the longer you live – because I've seen this in other people's lives as well. Mm-hmm. That as they get older, they tend to get more uh, more emotional. And, and um, you know, I see this in my – my father-in-law doesn't probably doesn't listen to the podcast, so I'll use him <laughs> as an example. But he's always had a very soft heart in in, yeah. in many areas, and um, but it, it's only 
it's only increased as mm. he's gotten older. He turns 86 today, actually. So happy birthday. Shout out to yeah. Tom birthday. in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's there, there are certain things that he cannot even, I mean, hardly talk about for more than like 10 seconds mm. before you can just see the tears starting the to The waterworks are coming, yeah. In his eyes. And so uh, I, I think there is something about age having an impact on that, but. But you know, he mentions in uh, introducing the chapter on Christianity's solution, he uses uh, a diagram from Campus Crusades' uh, classic uh, gospel track for spiritual laws. It's the train diagram, where he, um, where it basically it it, it tries to depict the um, the relationship of of faith and feelings and facts. Um, so I'm trying to find that quickly here. Uh, page 111. Thank you. There you go. And so um, – and it's interesting because, I mean, as you'll hear, we just recorded our interview with Pennington yesterday and so you'll hear this in a few weeks. But um, he he came to faith through Campus Crusade for Christ and so he, he speaks very fondly of crusade and he does an interesting job of like – Trying to say, if you look at this diagram from one perspective, it's actually really helpful that feelings are the caboose of the train. They don't drive the train and mm-hmm. so you have to be careful about them. But he's like, well, if you look at it from another angle though, this could be unhelpful because it almost makes them seem like emotions don't matter at all or irrelevant. Yeah. And I think that's that's just a, a difficult thing to sort out, um, which – and I'll, I'll, I'll bring, a, bring my comments to a close on this uh, from this angle. I think – This is where the role of community Mm -hmm. is so important because when we're in the midst of experiencing those emotions, it is often difficult for us to rightly evaluate what to do with them, how valid they are. Are they actually rooted in anything? Because we can experience emotions that are utterly utterly baseless, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can – you can have a situation where you know a kid is scared of something and you can tell that little kid a million times that's impossible to happen like you know there is no monster under your bed yeah yeah i've looked i'll look again there's nothing there come look with me right yeah and there's just an, there can be an irrational piece to the emotions mm-hmm. that no matter what you tell them they're still there and i think that's where community is so helpful in in wrestling with emotions and, and having outside people be able to say, I understand why you feel that way, but there's no basis in that. Like mm-hmm. that that's that's not something that is rational there to, to help kind of snap you out of the irrationality that emotions can lead you towards. Yeah. And uh, I think to go along with that, his uh, recommendation of reflection in here mm-hmm. I think is incredibly helpful, taking devoted time to think about yeah. why do I feel that way? Uh, what is that emotion telling mm-hmm. me about myself? What is happening uh, w- within my mind and spirit that, that is causing this to yeah. rise up? And even just reflecting on the emotional life of Jesus. I mean he mm-hmm. was a full, full – he was fully human. Yep. So he had human emotions. Now, not affected by the fall obviously, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean he was emotionless. You know, he, he, he experienced you know, joy and sorrow and – and those kinds of things. So um, I think having read the entire book 
those two chapters on the emotions were probably my favorite out hmm. of the whole book. Yeah, I'm excited for uh, for next week and getting into uh, some more uh, chapters. Yeah, so next week we'll we'll encourage you to read along with us chapters uh, seven and eight on relationships, the re- restoring relationships, how uh, philosophy talked about relationships and how Christianity as a whole life philosophy addresses that issue. Yeah, so just two chapters for next week. Seven and eight. Uh, yeah, and the, I think we came to the discovery that they're not numbered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just the section on relationships. Um, yeah, yeah, just the section on restoring relationships. Um, and just to highlight where we're going here, so we'll spend next episode talking about those two chapters, the episode after that on the final two chapters, and then the episode that drops on July 6th. 6th, yes. We will have our uh, interview with Jonathan Pennington on this book as well as other topics. We, we get, we, our discussion we get broad, yeah. went, went kind of broad, which was good. Um, and let me just say, even if you haven't read the book – He's an enjoyable person just to listen to talk to. He's very interesting, mm-hmm. has a lot of helpful things to say. So uh, don't let that turn you off to, oh, well, I haven't read the book. Uh, we don't just talk about the book. And even if you haven't read the book, he he hits some key points in there that you can still benefit from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, really, really quite a joy uh, to, to engage with him mm-hmm. and to just – I mean, we asked him some pretty off-the-cuff questions, and he he went pretty pretty deep yeah. uh, on some things. Let's All right. It. Are we ready to transition? Let's do it. All right. So we are going to talk about uh, the book writing process. I think we've touched on this. We've dipped into it at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I, th- I think, at least uh, I know I would be if, if I was not a friend of yours and, and knew about the book writing process. I think I'd be interested in just like, how does this all work? Um so, Doc, would you talk a little bit about – you obviously have several books out. Would you Would you mind enumerating them for us and, and, and uh, just, just, me- just mention them real quick? OK. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, my dissertation was published in tw- 2010. That's the book that's outrageously priced on Amazon. OK. So what what is it now? What's the going rate? Like 150? I think the last time I checked it was around 140, 150. Okay. Um, and then in 2014, I think it was, I had two books come out, my Philippians commentary with Mentor, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, a book that I co-edited called Studies in the Pauline Epistles, Essays in Honor of Douglas J. Moo. Uh, let's see. That's... And the Philippians commentary got book of the year uh, from a TGC editor, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just want to highlight that for the <laughs> listeners out there. There you go. Yep. Um, and let's see. So then after that, I wrote a book with Ben Glad, Making All Things New, Inaugurated Eschatology for hmm. the Life of the Church. There was a, um, a, a 12-week Bible study that I wrote on Jeremiah in the oh, yeah. Knowing the Bible series that Crossway does, um, Asking the Right Questions, a Practical Guide to Understanding and Applying the Bible. It came out in 2017. Uh Short commentaries on Second Peter and Jude in the ESV Expositors commentary series, and let's see. Um, and I think the next one was uh, Rebels and Exiles. Rebels and Exiles um, came out. Gosh, just this past year, right? October of twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Yeah. So, uh, biblical theology of sin and restoration, and then uh, the Servant of the Lord and His Servant People in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series that came out in December of this past year. And you've got some in the pipeline now, right? You got uh, yes. The next one that'll come out will be my commentary on Galatians okay. in the 
Evangelical Biblical Theological Commentary series. That will come out in late November, early December, tipping the scales at 650-some pages. <laughs> so that's a, that's a beefy boy. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a large book. Um, <laughs> it is. Um, okay. Uh, I think that's all of them. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that you, I'm under contract yeah. for that's coming out down the road, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So Luke Acts, <laughs> there, that's it's yeah. Anyway, um, talk to me a little bit about generating ideas for books. Uh, I know, like, a commentary is a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're, you're uh, probably approached maybe about that or yeah, something like that. But how do you develop something like making all things new? How, how does that idea come to the forefront? Yeah, so. Um, there's a sense in which you can kind of divide projects into into two categories. One is projects that a publisher or the editor of a series approaches you and says, we'd like you to write a book on this topic. Mm-hmm. And then there are other uh, – the, the other category is where you as the author generate the idea and then have to approach a publisher to convince them that it's a good idea and that they want to actually publish the book. So um, that – I'm trying to think. So that, that applies to uh, the book Making All Things New mm-hmm. that I wrote with Ben Glad. And that also applies to Asking the Right Questions. Those books were both um, ideas that we as authors ha- <clears throat> had. And so um, I, I get ideas all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've got a list of different, you know, when, when ideas come in come into my head, um, I, I I just kind of keep a list of them and and have them in an Evernote file. So I was about to say something in Evernote, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. just to, um, and you know, my guess is I I might end up ever writing maybe five percent of those books. Sure, <laughs> just because you know you, something catches your attention, and typically here's how it happens: I either myself go to uh, – I think that's an interesting topic. I want to find out more about it. I want to learn more about it. what's been written about that. And I do a little digging and I realize I don't really see anything yeah. that, that's been done that, that approaches it from the angle that I'm interested in or really addresses the question I have about hmm. that. Or um, uh, other times it will be, yeah, there's stuff out there. But I feel like they're missing a big piece of 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 some important element of that subject that needs to be addressed. Hmm. So, oftentimes they will also come out of my own just teaching experience, whether in the classroom here at Grace or in the local church. That's that was kind of the genesis of asking the right questions. Yeah, um, coming up with a. I mean that that book essentially started as a one-page document that had a set of questions that I used in mentor group. Yeah, I, I remember. Used it yeah. In uh, Sunday school classes at church, wherever, in, in classes here at Grace. And then just over time realized, I think I could turn this into something that could be useful. And then um, started the process of approaching a publisher. So uh, one, once you approach a publisher or they approach you, you're like a year or two out, maybe three years out um, from completing that manuscript. What uh, What's working with that publisher like? Are they checking in monthly? Are they checking in weekly, quarterly? Like how, how does that look? Yeah. So if, if you generate an idea, basically you end up submitting a proposal mm-hmm. to a publisher. And so 
what happens is that publisher then evaluates the idea. Typically, it's done by uh, a committee within that publishing house, and they talk through the idea. So that the proposal lays out kind of the rationale for the book, any competing works that talk about similar things, um, what level, who's your audience, who are you writing sure. it for, and at least a skeletal outline of what the book will be. Sometimes they want you to include a sample chapter. Now, the more established you become as an author, the less that becomes often necessary because they, sure. they can look at what you've written or they know what you've written and go, okay, we know he can write at this level. you know. So then they evaluate it and they make a decision whether they want to publish it. Um, so uh, there's no guarantee. I mean, publishers get so many proposals. Sent I'm sure. Yeah. And so it's, it's by no means uh, a guarantee. But once they say yes, we, we like this idea, we want to publish it, then contracts are drawn up and um, you set a, a timeline basically of when do you think you can finish the manuscript? And depending on what, they, what the publisher wants and how, how quickly you think you can finish it, you agree on a due date. And then from there, most publishers don't tend to check in very much. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, it's just um, they they kind of you know it's one of those things where it tends to happen informally. Sure, like you, you're at a conference. You're at a or conference, something. and it's yep. like, hey, how's that? How's that book on this coming along? You know, uh, that, that's how that tends to work. And you don't like missing due dates. I don't. Um, Some people do. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I probably hesitate to share this 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 story, but um, the the dirty little secret is that in the publishing world, professors are notoriously bad at hitting deadlines for uh, publications, which is hysterical to their students. Yeah, well, hysterical or frustrating. Or frustrating. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You know, because that same prof might be like, <laughs> "No, I'm not giving you an extension. I'm on not. That. I'm not accepting late work." Yeah, yeah. So. Um, it, there, there's definitely that dynamic there, but uh, often in sort of informal check-in, how's it going? Um, as the approach comes up, like with my servant book, the editor from IVP in the UK uh, checked in about a year before it was due, just to say, "I have down here that you're aiming for this deadline. Do you think that's still realistic?" Yeah. So, um, it kind of depends on publishers and and what the nature of the project is in terms of deadlines. Um, would you mind just maybe giving our listeners what is the writing process like for you? What tips or tricks or perhaps even oddities uh, <laughs> that, that uh, you have for writing? Sure. I think because you you produce at a pretty prolific level. Yeah, is, I, is that a fair statement? Uh, probably. You just don't like me saying that about you. Probably. You're avoiding eye contact. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I think that um, probably the. The the biggest thing is consistently setting aside time hmm. to write and learning how to to use even small windows of time to to get something done when it hmm. comes to writing. Um, my own process for me, everything in some ways. Well, let me divide two projects out. Commentaries are easy. In the sense that I'm just trying to follow the text. Sure. So, so the, in yeah. one sense, the, the outline of the book is provided by the biblical author. Mm -hmm. When it comes to other books though, 
for me, it all comes down to getting the outline. Once I've got an outline of what each chapter is going to be and then even within that chapter, some of the main headings in the chapter, then typically the writing process can go pretty quickly. And then it becomes easier for me to just pick smaller sections and say, I'm going to finish this section and not be overwhelmed by, well, how do I write this whole book? Well, I'm not writing the whole book right now. I'm writing this section of Mm. the book. So the outline becomes pretty key. And then for me, and I know this is part of where you're angling to get, (laughs) is um, I I tend to get motivated by tracking progress. That's just – I'm a a driven sort of type A personality when it comes to setting goals. And so um, I keep a Google Sheet that tracks word count on every project I'm working on. And it – so I – keep track. I enter in word counts and it gives me a daily total of where I'm at and Hmm. what I've done for the month, for the year. And um, yeah, I'm I'm currently in a a good groove. I had probably my best writing month maybe ever in the month of May last month in terms of word word count. Hmm. Yeah. So – and so far, June's off to a good start as well. Summers are, are especially productive typically for me. Um, you're not teaching classes. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm a little bit of an analytics guy when it comes mm-hmm. to that. <laughs> um, what is it like working with editors? What makes a good editor? What makes a bad editor? Because once you finish that manuscript, that's not the end of the project. Oh, no. No, no, no. So when you finish the manuscript and send it off, typically it goes through an initial edit by a um, by an editor where they will – to varying degrees, pick at your writing in terms of fixing grammatical mistakes or cl- indicating cl- unclear sentences or hmm. things like that, where they're indi- where they're marking out um, maybe the flow isn't great, or you've kind of already said this idea, you're rambling here, tighten this up. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that and my experience has been all over the map. I've had some editors who have a very light touch and want to allow my style to remain. Yeah. And I've had some other editors where I've had to push back. And there's always that sort of dance Mm -hmm. of me having to decide how much do I want to insist on this Mm -hmm. and how much leverage do I have to insist on this? I mean, uh, this is a small example but with my servant book. I was wondering if you're going to bring this up. Published yeah. in the UK. Well, I um, I was reading through after the editor had gone through it and I discovered that the editor had taken out basically every Oxford comma in, in the entire manuscript. Listeners, if you don't know what an Oxford comma is, type it into Google and wade into the debate. <laughs> yeah. I mean basically it's – if you have a list – do you put a comma after – so if you have a list of three things, mm-hmm. cats, dogs, and bears, the Oxford comma would would mean that you put a comma after dogs. So you'd go cats, comma, dogs, comma, and bears. So um, I that, that's just how I write. That's – Sure. I, I'm pretty committed to the Oxford comma. In any case, the editor went through and took them all out, took them all out. In the UK. In the UK. Wild. Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's where Oxford is, right? <laughs> so in any case, uh, 
I pushed back pretty hard and was told by the publishing house, that's not our house style. So they're not coming Wild. back. So I was a little disappointed. Yeah. I was, I was uh, flummoxed a bit on that. But anyway. Yeah. And then, uh, and then one final question about the yeah. process and then I think we need to, need to move on. Probably. Um, advertising the book afterward. Good experience, bad experience. Like what, what, what's the sense there? Yeah, so it it really varies by publisher in terms mm-hmm. of how much they expect the author to do. That was one of those things that I didn't really understand or expect getting into the writing world was m- my perception was well, once I've written the book, I've done the work. Now it's your guys' job as the publisher yeah. to market yeah. it and to to get news out about it and that sort of stuff. And I've discovered with that with most publishers, they want you to take a pretty um, a pretty significant role in the marketing of the book. And it really varies by publisher how much each of them is willing to do. So I'll give a huge shout out to the team at Crossway. Mm -hmm. They do a great job with it. And um, they do a lot of work on it in terms of the marketing and promotion of the book. But um, they still have me participate a good bit. Like I, I had a publicist that I worked with there who was fabulous, Mm -hmm. Lauren. I'll just give her first name. She was she's just fantastic. Still works there, and she um, she would regularly contact me. Hey, um, this podcast wants to interview you about the book. So she would she and her team would kind of get word out among you know different media outlets and stuff or podcasters who like books. Hey, here are some books from Crossway that are coming out, and they would say, Hey, we'd like to have. Uh, Matt Harmon on to talk about his book, asking the right questions or, or things like that. And so, um, you know, sometimes it'll include writing a, a short article for Gospel Coalition or Desiring God or Nine Marks that is on the topic of the book hmm. that as a sort of a lead into. So, yeah, I think uh, those are some ways that the, that they the the publisher asks you to participate in. And I was stunned when Lauren told me basically, yeah, a lot of authors just refuse to do it. And unless you've got a big name already established, like that's that's really not good for anybody. Like yeah. you kind of need to jump in and help out. Wild. All right. Well, I'm I'm sure there's more we could talk about in the book writing process, but let let's move on. Yeah. Uh we've I think in our last episode we really tipped uh, you know, you know, showed our hand a little bit on yeah. what we're going to, who we're going to choose this week. But we still need to read the names. Sort let's, of honorable mention, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know. Um do, yeah, let, let me read through them real quick. Uh, Orlando Pace, mm-hmm. uh, offensive tackle for the Rams, who we're going to pick. Uh, <laughs> Steve Hutchinson, uh, guard for uh, Seattle Vikings, uh, recent. I recognize that name. Yeah. I, I think he was quite good. Yep. Yep. Um, Lou Graza. Groza. Groza. I don't know that one. Yeah. Played offensive, played tackle, center, defensive tackle, and was a, is better known as a kicker. Played for the Browns and also was an Ohio State player. Uh, and they they name in college football the best kicker every year is given the Lou Groza Award. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Played for twenty years. That's yeah. impressive. Uh, Sean Bradley. Yeah, a skinny as a rail center for yeah. uh, Sixers, Nets, Mavs. Um, he wore seventy six because he was seven feet six inches tall. Ah. Um, oh, and by the way, sad story. In doing the research for this, he was in a bicycle accident, which 
picture a seven six, a seven, man six riding a yeah. bicycle. That must be special order bicycle. Had yeah. to be. Where he was hit by a car and is now paralyzed. Uh, Very sad. And then, of course, we have our Ohio State contingent here. Jim Marshall, who we've mentioned in the Barnabas Piper episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, played defensive tackle for Ohio State from 57 to 58. And then our uh, current offensive tackle, Harry Miller, uh, for the Buckeyes uh, as well, were 76. And, I mean, we more or less tipped our hand last week that we're going with yep. Orlando Pace. Yep. So, All right. Doc, one thing you like. Yeah, so I'm a um summers mean a lot more reading time and I'm cranking through the the Frederick Backman uh corpus at this point. Nice. So I've mentioned a man called Ove and uh really enjoyed that. That's that's been by far my favorite of his books. I've also read Anxious People, which is about a bank robbery, very mm. interestingly told. And I just finished uh Bear Town, which is this it, it sort of has a Friday night lights vibe to it in terms of it's about this hockey town and the the club hockey team and the the players and it just if you're familiar with the show Friday Night Lights sort of transpose that onto hockey and you've got some of the vibe of what that um, in Sweden though right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah okay. absolutely so uh, Frederick Backman Bear Town and the sequel to that which is the one I'm reading right now is Us Against You Us so against he's just you. a good he he develops great characters. Hmm. He is uh, gifted at, at creating very interesting people. Um, and then the one thing I like this week, uh, badminton. Uh, <laughs> I was walking around Costco, gosh, probably a month ago, and saw a badminton set. Uh, my wife grew up playing badminton in the backyard like al- almost every night from, wow. from what she says. And so we've set it up in the backyard now recently and have been playing badminton Okay, uh, back and forth. And that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. A man of many interests, John mm-hmm. Sloat. But doesn't that damage the grass? Um, It's not helping. Uh, but the grass seems to be okay with okay. it at, at the moment. So. Okay. Because I, I, I know our listeners are very invested in your grass growing. So I, you know, I just want to make sure we're not undermining it. Yeah, yeah. We uh, I sprayed down some some weed killer this week, so so to get rid of the clovers yep. and the dandelions and those sorts of things. So we're, we're anxiously awaiting those things to go away, so the grass can really thrive. Indeed, indeed. So we've talked NBA playoffs. We've talked Jesus, the great philosopher, and as a reminder, read uh, chapter seven and eight for next episode. Yes, talking about uh, restoring relationships. We've talked about the book writing process. We've talked about various athletes, including Orlando Pace, the most dominant college offensive lineman I've ever seen. We've talked about Frederick Backman's corpus, not his corpse, his corpus. That's an important <laughs> distinction. And we've talked about uh, badminton. Badminton. Yeah. So I think by definition, we're, we've covered our various and sundry topics, and I think we're ready to call Mission Accomplished. Absolutely. All right. So... I think all that's left to say is that until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later. 